This is Pastor James Guyo, and welcome to Berean Sovereign Grace Church in Westerville, Ohio. We are a Sovereign Grace teaching ministry, and you can visit our website, www.salvationinchristalone.com, to hear more of our messages, and also go to soundcloud.com and search for James Guyo. My last name is spelled G-U-Y-O, or you can search Berean Sovereign, just Berean Sovereign, and you will see our messages there also. May the Lord bless your hearing, and may he serve you for his sake, for Christ's sake, and for the sake of his gospel. And now to our gospel teaching. Now, now that the sermon has been found, <laughs> let us go before the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we praise you again this morning by the merit of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Lord, we honor you for you are worthy of all glory and honor. And we thank you for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, again, for his faithfulness to save us. For he did not have to, but he was pleased to. And Lord, we are just thankful and we pray now, Lord, for help as we go into your word, that you may give us understanding, give us illumination, that we may see what it is that you would have us understand. We pray and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. John nine thirty-five to 41, and that's going to be our last installment from chapter 9 until I don't know when. John nine thirty five to 41. And the text reads and says, Jesus heard that they had put him out. And finding him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? Verse 37. Jesus said to him, You have both seen him, and he is the one who is talking with you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. And Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, so that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may become blind. Those of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and said to him, We are not blind too, are we? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say we see, your sin remains. And the title of our sermon is going to be, Lord, I believe. Lord, I believe. Or, <laughs> if you were blind, you would have no sin. Or, verse 41, the Lord Jesus Christ has come to one of his own. Chosen and given to him by the Father from before the foundation of the world. He has come to him because he is born blind. He cannot see his way to Christ by himself unless Christ comes and opens his blind eyes. And that is saying there's no man who can see their way to Christ unless Jesus first comes and opens their eyes 
and removes their blindness. And that is a very clear teaching, very plain teaching of the word of God. This is not about our physical vision, but spiritual vision. Our ability or lack of ability to believe the gospel or not believe the gospel. Men are naturally born blind. They are not born with spiritual eyes. They are born in the darkness of this world. And this world by nature is full of darkness. The world has no light of its own. It relies on the light from the sun, the illumination from the sun to come and shine every single day. And so as is the earth and so are its inhabitants. The earth does not naturally possess its own light and so the inhabitants of the earth also naturally do not possess their own light. They need an external source of light to see or else they too remain in their darkness. They need surgery by one who has eyes to see, one who is able to give sight to the blind, and this one cannot come from here. He has to come from outside the earth. And so Jesus would say, I have come. That is saying he is not originally from here. He has come from somewhere. He's speaking to his pre-existence before he came. So he has come to open the eyes of those who are born blind, that they may see him, that they may believe in him. And this blindness did not happen by accident. It was a work of God, according to Jesus, that the works of God may be displayed in the man. Men are sinners by God's decree that God's works may be displayed in their salvation. Salvation is not a random work. It's not an afterthought of God. Jesus is not a fireman. Jesus does not work with the fire trucks. This was always God's purpose, that men would fall and Christ would come and redeem them and Christ would be glorified in their salvation, that he may display his glory in serving them. So all creation is for God that he may display his glory or creation. So the glory of God is the end of all creation. The glory of God is the reason why things are what they are. And as we learn from John in Revelation 4.11, he says, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power For you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. So all things were created by him, and by his will, and for his glory, and for his honor, and for his power to be shown. So God did not create man so that they may have ice cream and bask in the sun, (laughs) and have fun, have a good life. No, Christ has to be exalted. Jesus Christ has to be exalted. God has to display his glory, his grace, his mercy, his power, his love in the salvation of man 
who are incapable of helping themselves, men who are born blind. And it is the blindness that tells you that you are not able to help in your own salvation. So the judgment of blindness on men was put on them by God and not men. Men did not put this judgment by themselves. It is God who put the judgment of blindness on man so that he alone would come and unlock it. It's God who alone is able to unlock the blindness that is on man. He alone is able to change the light bulbs that give man spiritual sight. And this is why Jesus denied the theology that the blindness was caused by his parents or the man himself. Jesus denied that. Spiritual blindness is a sovereign work of God. And it can be given to men to do. Men cannot do that. If men could do that, if the parents could cause blindness, then they have to share glory with God. But Jesus said, The man was born blind that God may display his works of glory in him, in giving him sight. So this work is a work that comprehends things way before the man even showed up. God decreed that this man will be blind and Jesus was going to come and open his eyes. So God caused the blindness for no other reason than to save the man and be glorified doing it. And so sin is in the world, not by accident, but because God decreed it that he may be glorified in removing it. You and I would have very little appreciation of the grace of God if righteousness and life could be bought at a drive through or at Walmart. Like, okay, I think I'm going to go to heaven next week. I'm going to pass through Walmart and get me a quarter pound of righteousness and uh, a supersized 40 ounces of sanctification and whatever I need to take with me to heaven. You would not have any appreciation whatsoever of the glory of God, of the grace of God, just the grace of God in bringing you to himself and to even see him. You would not have that appreciation. Apostle John says, quoting the Lord Jesus in John seventeen three, that eternal life is to know God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. But you can't know that. You can't know God, you can't know Jesus Christ if your eyes are blind. Do you see the connection? So your eternal life consists in knowing who God is in the face of Jesus Christ. That's eternal life. And so the coming of Jesus to his own and opening their eyes is the work of God. And if Jesus is coming to give sight, like I said, assumes that he pre-existed his coming. But pre-existence necessarily does not mean that Jesus is God because angels pre-existed the coming of Jesus on earth. We know that Jesus is God because he created things. Only God can create. We know that Jesus is God because he forgave sin because only God forgives sin. 
Okay. But in the language of John, when Jesus is saying he came, we already have that knowledge that he came as the logos of God. He is the word of God. So he is coming as God who is tabernacling with us, taking up human flesh. That is already assumed in the language of coming. I came that you may have sight or that you may be blind or for judgment. But the opening of eyes, the opening of eyes has been set in the context of the Sabbath. The opening, the healing of the man was set in the context of the Sabbath. So the healing by Jesus is always tied to God giving rest. God did not enter into his rest. God did not rest on the seventh day after creation because his blood sugar was running low and was sweating from the sun, from the heat of the sun that he had just created. He rested in that he ceased from his works because he had completed his work of the first creation. And the gospel is the work of God's second creation, the new creation, the spiritual creation. And the finishing of it is another rest, is another Sabbath. So the first Sabbath that God entered into was a type of the Sabbath, the rest that Christ was going to come and establish for us by his finished work. And so Jesus has come in this second spiritual creation to give rest, not just from physical infirmities, but rest from all that became of sinners. Rest from sin, death, condemnation, the wrath of God, hell, the power of the evil one. All those things that became of us because of sin. Christ has come to remove all those things and usher us in into the rest of God's righteousness and life. So Jesus came to destroy the works of the evil one because the devil is involved in every one of these, right? Sin, death, he brought the condemnation on us and he brought the wrath of God on, on us. He brought everything is connected to the works of the devil. Jesus said he was a murderer from the beginning. And so Jesus comes and heals the man on the Sabbath and he gives him the true Sabbath, this true rest. But the religious officials are not impressed. They are not very happy. They are very displeased and are skeptical of Jesus' righteousness and even are questioning the place of his origin because it seems to their way of understanding to be a habitual lawbreaker and thus could not have come from God. And the problem with the religious leaders is that they do not know who Jesus Christ is. Their eyes are blind to their own blindness and so they are also blind to the righteousness that is in Christ. They are spiritually dead men but that does not stop them from being religious. They are very sincere people, like a lot of religious people, very sincere, and they are very zealous people, but they do not understand the person of Christ and the work of Christ. And so it is very common 
for men, very natural for men to be very pious, to be very religious, and yet hate the truth of Christ when they hear it. And so because of their spiritual blindness, Jesus becomes their enemy. And those that are in Christ become their enemy, as happened to the ex-blind beggar. Since they can't find Jesus, they lay their hands on the one who was connected to Jesus. Jesus said, the world does not hate you because of you, they hate you because of me. So if men cannot lay their hands on Jesus, guess what? They're going to try and lay their hands on the ones that are connected to Jesus. So the religious officials interrogate and they subject the ex-blind men to public scrutiny. They want him to recant his position. They want him to say, oh, Jesus is a sinner. They want him to say, Jesus is not from God. They want him to say, Jesus is a liar. But the more they press the man against the wall, the more the man sides with Jesus. That's what is going to happen. So suffering is not going to cause you to recant your position of Christ. It actually is going to squeeze more of Jesus from you. <laughs> you are going to find yourself siding more and more with Jesus. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is the one that will give you that testimony of Christ and gives you the boldness to remain in Christ. But if they could be convinced, that is the religious officials, if they could be convinced of how his eyes were opened, they may cut him a slack. How did he open your eyes, they asked. That's their problem. They, they, they are not really convinced. They want to know how this man born blind could have his eyes opened. They want to know how Jesus did it. And if they are not satisfied with the procedure, then they will have to throw away the man, throw away the baby and the bath water. And so they are quick to dissociate themselves from Jesus and say, we do not know where this man is from. We do not know him. We do not follow him. And surely he is not from God we are disciples of Moses. We know God spoke to Moses. We are law keepers. And in this was the testimony of their blindness. Insisting on your law keeping, insisting in your obedience in the face of Christ is a sure sign of blindness. You don't run to the law. You don't speak about your own performance in the face of Jesus. The law is supposed to lead you to Jesus and not hide Jesus. And so they are using Moses wrongly and Jesus will condemn them for it. Because he said that, I think in John 5, in John 5 somewhere, Jesus said, it's Moses who is going to judge you. Because Moses spoke of me, he testified of me, but you are not coming to me that you may have life. And so Jesus knows that they are not law keepers. Jesus knows the function of the law. And he knows that he alone has come to keep the law. He knows all that. And so they divide and separate themselves from Christ. The ex-blind man is a disciple of Christ. He has been schooled by Christ and is in union with Christ. But they claim to have been schooled by Moses. 
So their testimony of Moses is false. Their testimony of the law is false. Because if they were true disciples of Moses, then they would have come to Christ. They would have run to Christ. They still have the veil on their hearts, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and we are going to go there and read it. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 12 to 17. 2 Corinthians 3, 12 to 17 says, Therefore, having such a hope, we use great boldness in our speech, and are not like Moses, who used to put a veil over his face so that the sons of Israel would not look intently at the end of what was fading away. But their minds were hardened, for until this very day, at the reading of the old covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because it is removed in Christ. But to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. And that means that there is no liberty under the old covenant. And that means the Spirit of the Lord is not part of the old covenant. The old covenant does not give the Spirit in the believer. The Spirit is only given as a promise of the New Testament. And so the freedom that the believer has only comes because they have the Spirit of God. And the old covenant and its glory was fading away. So you don't want to take yourself back to something that was fading away. There's no life for you there. And let me go to Exodus 34, 29 to 35 and read the actual story of what was happening that Apostle Paul gave commentary here in Second Corinthians 3. Exodus 34. Verses 29 to 35. Exodus 34, 29 to 35 says, It came about when Moses was coming down from Mount Sinai, and the two tablets of the testimony were in Moses' hand as he was coming down from the mountain, that Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because of his speaking with him, that is, with God. So when Aaron and all the sons of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone and they were afraid to come near him. Then Moses called to them and Aaron and all the rulers in the congregation returned to him and Moses spoke to them. Afterward, all the sons of Israel came near and he commanded them to do everything that the Lord had spoken to him on Mount Sinai. When Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. But whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would take off the veil until he came out. And whenever he came out and spoke to the sons of Israel, what he had been commanded, the sons of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face shone. So Moses would replace the veil over his face until he went in to speak with him. So Moses would go to God and uncover his face. But on coming back to the children of Israel, he would veil his face. And according to Apostle Paul, this was a type of concealing the glory 
of the gospel from them. And anyone who continues to be under Moses still has that veil over their heart. They are not seeing the glory of the gospel. They are seeing the glory of the law, but the glory of the law is a fading glory, is going away. And even then, the glory that Moses had was not his glory. It was not intrinsic to Moses. Moses was only shining because he had been in the presence of God. He was only reflecting the glory that he had in the presence of God. So the law reflects the glory of God, but the glory of God itself is found in the gospel. So if you want to have the real glory of God, you don't go to the law. The law only reflects the glory of God, just as the moon reflects the light of the sun, and yet the moon does not possess light in itself. So that's the connection. So if anyone is wanting to remain under the law, they are saying they would rather be on the moon. They don't want to have the sun itself. So the ministry of the law was a shadow and not the substance of the gospel. And the Apostle Paul says, the veil that covers one's heart is only removed in the Lord. It's only removed in the gospel. It's only removed in the new covenant. So one has to be converted to the gospel for them to realize the proper function of the law. And there are many such people in the church who still have this veil of the law over their hearts. They have zeal for the law, but zeal for the law does not mean that one understands the true function of the law. And it doesn't mean that one actually believes the gospel. Zeal for the law is not the same as zeal for Christ. And so these religious leaders, they had a lot of zeal. Apostle Paul said of the Pharisees and Israel in Romans 10 that they have zeal, but not according to knowledge. So these religious leaders have the veil of Moses still on their hearts, and so they reviled the ex-blind man and threw him out of the synagogue. They are a confused bunch of people because on one hand, listen to this, they deny the blindness of the man. They call the parents to testify if this was their son. So they are denying the blindness of the man, and yet they say to the man, you were altogether born in sin. So what are they saying? They are saying you were blind because of your sin which charge Jesus has already refuted and denied at the beginning of the chapter. But by saying to the man, you were altogether born in sin, they were acknowledging that he was formerly blind, but now he sees. But their pride did not get them around to accept a clear and true testimony of the man. So, Jesus had, we are now to the text, Verse 35 to 37 of John 9. Jesus heard that they had put him out. And finding him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, 
You have both seen him and he is the one who is talking with you. Jesus heard about the excommunication of the man by the religious officials and he came looking for him. Remember, the man had not yet physically seen Jesus. But Jesus knows the man, Jesus knows his sheep. He looks for him and he finds him. He has to find him. That's the quality of a good shepherd. He finds his sheep even though they've never seen him. And listen to, to the question that Jesus asked the man. Jesus did not say, oh, too bad, they kicked you out. Let me find you another synagogue. <laughs> let, let me find you some other good guys to hang around with. Jesus was not concerned about that because his mission was the salvation of his people. He asked the man and said, do you believe in the son of man? Jesus is not distracted by everything that is happening. This is a salvation question. That is a gospel question. And that is the most important question that one born blind could be asked by Jesus and answer. And Jesus uses the messianic title, son of man. John is not really fond of using that. He uses the son of God. But here, Jesus uses son of man. But Jesus uses son of man to conceal his identity, but also to connect us to Daniel, the son of man in Daniel. And this is Jesus' preferred self-designation. It's a messianic title. But the man answered and said, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? Who is he? Who is he that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have both seen him, and he is the one who is talking with you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. See the transaction. The blind man is growing in his revelation of the person of Jesus. If you look at the text from the beginning of the conversation in John 9, initially he called the man called Jesus. He was just a man. Then he is a prophet. And then he calls him Lord. Lord, I believe and he worshipped him. Same happened to the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4. Initially, she addressed Jesus as you being a Jew, just being flippant, to say, to are you greater than our father Jacob? To say, I perceive that you are a prophet. To, is this not the Christ? To the savior of the world. That's the revelation that is happening. And it's Jesus who is doing that. This is the work of the Spirit as the conversation is going on. Jesus is revealing himself as he was revealing himself to the thief on the cross. The thief on the cross received revelation about Jesus right there on the cross. So as Jesus is dying, he is dying to save his people. And what better way to demonstrate that but by serving the one thief that was dying with him. So the ex-blind man is ready to receive the testimony of Jesus. He says, who is he? Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? I am so ready 
to receive the Son of Man, whoever he is. And that is the testimony of one who is converted, born again of God. Childlike faith. This man did not have much to work on. He did not know that the Son of Man is the very same man who had just opened his eyes. But because he had been converted, he was ready. And he was simple. And he was very trusting. In Matthew 18, verses 3, Jesus says, Verily I say unto you, Except ye be converted, and become as little children, you shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Unless you be converted and become like little children, trusting, very simple, ready to receive, ready to believe, bring nothing like little children, you shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. And that sounds like the Ethiopian eunuch with Philip in Acts 8, 34-38. You know the conversation in Acts 8, 34-8. Sorry, 34 to 38. The Ethiopian eunuch is reading from the book of Isaiah. Reading from Isaiah 53. And the eunuch has no understanding of what the text is talking about and who it is talking about. So when Philip shows up, the eunuch answered Philip and said, well, Philip came and said, do you understand what you're reading? The eunuch answered Philip and said, please tell me, of whom does the prophet say this, of himself or of someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning from this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. As they went along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, water, (laughs) what prevents me from being baptized? And Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he ordered the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip as well as the eunuch, and he baptized him. In the theology of Jesus, in the teaching of John, salvation is about believing in the Son of God, the Son of Man. It's in believing. And that just sounds too simple to me, and I'm sure to a lot of people. Just believe in the Son of Man and all your sins are forgiven you forever. Just believe. Just sitting where you are, believe. Don't even get up. Don't even say anything. Just believe. That seems to be too much uncomplicated to do. And this is the reason why men stumble at the gospel. Because it's too simple. The ex-blind man did not say, well, I believe, but Jesus, that's just too easy. Give me something hard to do. Give me some more work to do. You can't just leave me with believing. That's not enough. Give me something tangible that I can touch and feel. Men love to touch and feel. But believing was enough for the man who was born blind, but who could see. And believing was enough for the Ethiopian eunuch that he was baptized. God has tied life, salvation, righteousness to his son. To believe in the son is to believe in the father. And it is to believe in the Holy Spirit. Because they all testify of him. The son testifies of himself. The father testifies of the son. The Holy Spirit testifies of the son. 
And no one says Jesus is Lord but by the Holy Spirit. And no one comes to the Son unless the Father draws them. And no one believes the Son unless they've been born from above. So the Trinity is a Christocentric Trinity. It is centered around the Son. God is centered around the Son. Jesus Christ is the focal point of the Trinity. God is glorified in the Son. The Father glorifies the Son and the Holy Spirit glorifies the Son. And he speaks of the Son. He does not speak of himself. So the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is the object of our faith. You can't just talk about God, God, God without talking about the Son. If anyone talks about God without talking about the Son, they don't believe in God and they are not a believer. And so when Jesus shows up, he does not ask anyone or someone if they believe in God. Rather, he asks them if they believe in him. He is the object of saving faith. Gospel faith by nature, by its character, always looks outside of the person who is doing the believing and says, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? Who is the Son of Man that I may believe in him? So, saving faith is not directed to the person doing the believing. Saving faith is not directed to me or you. You don't direct your faith to yourself and try to see how strong or weak your faith is. But it always looks to the one who does the saving. The one who opens the eyes of those born blind. Verse 37 of John 9 says, Jesus said to him, you have both seen him and he is the one who is talking with you. And he said, Lord, I believe and he worshipped him. That was a very simple transaction as I said, but also it was a very fast transaction. Do you believe in the Son of Man? Yes, Lord, I believe. And that was it. Jesus did not say, you need to do the law now, now that you have been saved. When Philip had preached Jesus to the eunuch and the eunuch had understood the person of Isaiah 53 his question was look water what prevents me from being baptized what is to prevent me from being baptized being saved by Christ seeing that the suffering servant was already made a propitiation for our sins he shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. So God saw the labor of Christ and was satisfied. So if God was satisfied, what is to prevent you from being baptized? Many churches, many places will say, you have to take some disciple classes, discipleship classes. For one month, two, three months, you have to enter into a church covenant with that church body. You have to sign some papers. You have to commit how much money you are going to give. Some would say, as long as you have forsaken all your sins, then you may be baptized. Men always have something to add to Christ. 
before you get baptized because they do not understand the work of God in salvation. The church does not transact the paperwork of salvation. The church is not the one that signs your papers of salvation. They do not put a seal on your papers. The church as a body only receives those whose paperwork has already been approved, sealed, and stemmed by Christ. So we just receive those Christ brings to us because their paperwork is already complete. Christ finished their paperwork on the cross. See the condition of salvation from the story of the Ethiopian eunuch. Verse 37 of Acts 4. And Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that's the content of his faith. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And that is all. And that was enough for the Ethiopian Enoch. And if it was enough for the Ethiopian Enoch, it's still enough for you. It's still enough for me. But let us work some more understanding as to why that was enough. Why does Jesus consider that enough for you to come with a testimony before him and say, you are the son of man? And Jesus says, you are one of mine. Why is that enough? Why is faith enough for the transaction of salvation? By saying one believes in Christ, one is acknowledging that they are a sinner. They are acknowledging that they were born blind. For only sinners born again from above believe in the person of Christ. Only those whose eyes have been opened by Christ make that confession. True faith comprehends the whole person and work of Christ. It believes in Jesus as the Son of God and it believes that he came in the flesh. It believes that he died and accomplished salvation. It believes that the sinner is born blind without any ability whatsoever and that their eyes can only be opened by this one who is the son of man when he shows up. He has to show up. And the Pharisees fail to pass this test to make a confession of Jesus. They fail to agree with Jesus about his own self-witness. To confess is to agree. Is to agree with someone. Is to say the same things as someone. So when you say, I believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God, you are agreeing with God that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And the Pharisees fail to agree with Jesus about who he is. It's like me arguing with Sister Becker that she is not Sister Becker. It's a useless argument, but the problem is not her. The problem is me. I am denying something that is true about her. So no man is saved who denies the identity of Jesus Christ. Because salvation is to affirm the person of Christ. The identity of Jesus and his work are inseparable. The work of Christ, the success and perfection and completeness of his work 
depends on who he is. And so a denial of the person of Christ is a denial of his work. So faith looks to Christ because it is a gift from God. Faith is God's glasses that he gives to his elect to correct their spiritual vision. These are glasses that God gives to each and every one of his people to correct their vision, their short-sightedness, to cure their myopia. And this faith from God pierces through the clouds of your confusion. It pierces through the clouds of religion, man-made religion, to see that which the physical eyes cannot see. And that is why the scriptures say we walk by faith, not by sight. Faith sees and believes things that are not seen. Hebrews 11, 1 to 3. The writer of Hebrews says, Now faith is the assurance of things hopeful, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the men of old gained approval. By faith we understand the words were prepared by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. I saw a preacher on one of these TV networks, either TBN or the Word Channel, and he was teaching on what is called now faith. Now faith. Like there's a kind of faith called now faith. (laughs) There's nothing called now faith. There's only faith. (laughs) Now and then faith. (laughs) There's nothing called now faith and there's nothing called then faith. There's only faith. The writer of Hebrews is using now to connect things. It's a connector from Hebrews 10. And the KJV says of Hebrews 11, 1 and 2, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it the elders obtained a good report. Faith is the confident expectation and assurance of the things, the substance, the content that God has promised and given us in Christ. And the substance of faith begins with the person of Christ. It begins with the person of Christ, the revelation of Christ to his people. And these things are not seen visually with magnifying glasses, but are seen by trusting the faithfulness of the one who promised them. The conviction of faith comes from the faithfulness and character of him who has given those promises. So faith is trusting the character of God. It's trusting his name and Jesus is the name of God. And in the Old Testament, God says, for his sake, for his name, He acts. He acted. He did things for the sake of his name. His character. And so God has put the reputation of his name 
in salvation. Hear me. And for his sake, for the sake of his reputation, he will do it. He will save you. And when you trust that he is able and he will deliver on his promises, that is faith. That he is able and he will deliver on his promises to you in Christ, in the person of Christ. You can't remove the person of Christ. That is faith. And that is what pleases him. And that is what gives you a good report as everybody else in the whole of faith in Hebrews 11. And that is salvation. So this faith is opposed to works. It's opposed to your works because your works causes you to look to you and to glorify in you for the accomplishment of things that God only gives in Christ. So works cause one to trust not in God, but in ourselves. And God does not like that. And so according to Apostle Paul, telling of his experiences in Asia, in 2 Corinthians 1 verse 9, he says, But we had the sentence of death in ourselves that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. So he says, they went through a lot of affliction that they even despaired of life itself for the simple reason that they should not trust in themselves, but trust in God who raises the dead. So God brings suffering that the believers should not trust in themselves. And to trust in yourself is also to render worship to you, and that is idolatry. So God does not give salvation by our works that he may draw us to him and to trust in him and to glory only in him. But he ordained the good works that we do. But the good works that we do, their goodness is judged not by us, but by him who ordained them. But these works are not what justifies us and give us eternal life. We do not get eternal life from the good works that God performs in us. We are justified by the good work that Christ accomplished in his life and in his death. So gospel faith looks to Christ for all sufficiency. Christ is all and in all. It looks to Christ and affirms his identity always, his preeminence, his origin, and his accomplishments, and trusts and rests in that. True faith, gospel faith, seeks to grow more and to know more about Christ because that is the person of salvation, that we may know him, that we may know him. And so Apostle Paul said, in talking about his own testimony of coming to the knowledge of Christ, he said he forsook his own righteousness that was according to the law that he may be found in him. Not having his own righteousness, 
which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. And that is from Philippians 3, 9 to 14. And so he continues and says that I may know him. So Apostle Paul is giving us an understanding of faith. That's the content, that's the nature of gospel faith, that you may know him, know Christ. You forsake all your righteousness, that you may know him and the power of his resurrection. Because it seems that this is just better. It's just better this way for you. And the fellowship of his sufferings and being made conformable unto his death, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead, not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect, but, but I follow after, if that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of Jesus Christ. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind, and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. So Apostle Paul says, I am forgetting all those things which are behind. Everything about me, everything about my accomplishments, everything about my identity as a Jew, as a descendant of Abraham, as a Benjamite. Remember, Benjamin was one of Jacob's favorite sons. So he comes from this tribe, which was very much loved by one of the patriarchs. And he says, I'm forgetting all those things. I am laying them behind and reaching forth for those things which are before me. So faith seeks to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and to be found in him, possessing his righteousness alone. It forgets that which lies behind. Forget about your sin. Forget about your stumbling, but stretches out its hand and reaches forth unto those things that God has laid before us. So it presses toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. And that is why God says he will not be pleased if one shrinks back. Because when you are shrinking back, guess what? You are going to those things which are behind. But we are not of those who shrink back. So faith is a gift from God, which means it necessarily looks outside itself. I think I made that remark earlier. It seeks acceptance outside the person doing the believing. It turns one into a beggar of grace, into a grace case. We are naturally born with two eyes and two ears, but we are not born with a faith that pleases God. Faith is not something that we naturally possess. Faith has to be given in regeneration by Christ, by his spirit, who is the author and finisher of it. And so through faith, God speaks Christ to us. God does not speak to us about salvation outside the person of Christ and outside faith. So God reveals the person of Christ to us through faith. 
He reveals the righteousness of the gospel to us through faith. He reveals the completeness of Christ through faith. He reveals his grace to us and faith is enough for salvation because its hand only grabs Christ. It does not grab anything else that is not Christ. But by faith, we are not the ones who hold Christ tightly. It is Christ who holds us tightly. We are bound to get tired if our salvation depended on how strong a grip we had on Christ. You and I will be in trouble because our hands of faith would get tired. We are bound to get our hands distracted with other things of life. We are naturally busybodies and we fumble. We are a clumsy people. But Christ's grip on us is ever strong and undistracted. Who can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus? So in faith, God is saying, I have you by my hand, my omnipotent hand, my undistracted hand. Though you stumble, I will hold you up to the end because I am the good shepherd of the sheep. If you get lost, I will come and I'll get you. And that is why Apostle Peter writes and says in 1 Peter 1 verses 3 to 5, Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again unto a living hope by the resurrection of Christ from the dead. The one that has been born again, they are begotten to a living hope. Everybody is born to something. So if you are in Christ, born again in Christ, you are born to a living hope and not a dying hope. See the difference? Apostle Paul says, this is the nature of the living hope. It's an inheritance to an inheritance. You see the language? A living hope. We are born to something, to an inheritance. And this is the nature of the inheritance. It's incorruptible. It's undefiled. And that fades not away. And it's reserved in heaven for you where no moth or thief can come and take it away. It can't be lost. And who are kept, verse 5, by the power. We are kept by the power of God. See, whose power? It's not your power. We are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. So you see, the theology is just so consistent, but God just continues to weave it in different ways. So, gospel faith, we are still talking about the blind man. But this is the content of what the man believed. He may not have understood it all, but that's what comes in the package of his confession. Okay? So gospel faith is 100% consistent with grace. Remember, we are saved by grace. And by grace, it means God does 100% of all the work of salvation. And faith means we receive 100% of what God has worked for us in salvation. Faith by its nature receives 100%. It does not receive 50% 
and then try to make up the difference. Faith by nature receives 100% or it does not receive anything. And this is the only allowable combination in salvation. Any other key combination does not and will not open heaven's doors for you. 90% faith and 10% of you is the wrong combination. It does not unlock salvation. 100% faith is the key that opens up heaven's doors. If you come with some other key combination, Jesus will always say, you are missing something, like he did to the rich young ruler. Jesus said to the rich young ruler, you are missing something. You go sell everything that you have and come follow me. Your lock combination, your key combination for heaven is not right. Let me correct it for you. You are thinking you are going to attain eternal life by your law obedience and it's not going to happen. Your law obedience is not going to cut it. You and me, it's not going to cut it. Let me tell you the formula. You go empty yourself of you and then you follow me. So this is the only key. I am the key. So Jesus will always tell you that you are missing something in your key combination. And the combination that works is him alone, grace alone, faith alone. So grace means we are saved freely, justified freely, without cause. The Greek word freely is without cause. It means without cause, without any merits, without any contribution from us. We do not add anything to that. And so Romans 3, 21 to 26 says, Romans 3, 21 to 26 says, But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. So the law and the prophets are only witnesses of the righteousness of God. They are not the givers of the righteousness of God. They only bear testimony. Verse 22, even the righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely, hear that, by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance God has passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So if you know the background of what Apostle Paul is arguing in Romans he says the Jew is condemned because they have been given the law and they can't do the law and they have not done the law. The law demands 100% obedience and the Jews have failed to give 100% obedience to the law and the Gentile is not accepted. The Gentiles are also condemned because even though they don't have the codified law, their consciences have enough knowledge to get them condemned. And so all have fallen short of the glory of God 
And that means there's only one option left for one to be saved. So all humanity as it stands, they only have one option for them to be saved. Only one option. It's too late for all of those born of a woman to try and be good as to be accepted by God. So it is too late to do the law. It is too late for a Gentile to get on the law treadmill and try to lose the weight of sin. It's not going to happen. The only hope left is to receive the righteousness of God that is apart from the law. It's apart from your obedience to the law. That's what he's saying. I do not know why people still are so fixated on doing the law. They behave like they do not understand what the Bible is actually saying. The Bible is very clear about the function of the law. If you are reading it by yourself without any of these books and commentaries, you will become a believer. I'm serious. There's no man who can improve their standing before God by turning to the law. The only way left for a sinner like you and I is the narrow way. It is the straight metal jacket way. It is the righteousness of God which is through the faith of Christ to those who believe. The only way left for you is to believe. So to believe in Christ is to say, I do not have a righteousness of my own and I am not capable of producing it. And my only hope is that righteousness that God gives or reckons to me freely without cost, without charge on account of Christ. So the only hope for a sinner is if God freely gives them, he imputes to them the salvation that is in Christ Jesus. Verse 24 of Romans 3, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Because the sinner is not able to produce their own righteousness and are not able to pay for their own salvation, they can only be justified freely. And if it is freely, then it means it is by grace. Grace and freely go in the same sentence. They make sense together. They are a good couple, happily married ever after. Grace and freely. Works and freely do not work together. They are opposed to each other. Grace, faith, and freely are siblings. They are beds of the same feathers. They flock together. They mix well. They play well. They live well together. They share the same parent, Jesus Christ, the author and finisher of faith. Grace, law, and faith are Sarah and Hagar, Isaac and Ishmael. They can't stay in the same house. They can't live in the same house without conflict. Someone has to be thrown out and it is Hagar and her son. You have to throw out one of these from your own house. Nor your mother. She is not Hagar. Nor your brother. He is not Ishmael. He is Isaac. Isaac is your sibling. Let us not confuse a very clear teaching of the Bible. Free justification 
is the only hope for a sinner. And that is what grace means for you. It means you come to God with nothing, but with the only hope and confidence that he will just speak and say, you are clean by the word that I have spoken. Not you are clean because you stopped doing this. Not you are clean because you started doing this. But because of what I said about you, you are clean by the word that I've spoken, says the Lord. And when you come to him this way, that is faith. So grace, faith, and freely are very important words in salvation. Listen to what the preachers are saying about those three words. Grace, faith, and freely. If you add works to salvation, that's not freely. And God only justifies freely. We can't play games with those words. To be saved by Christ alone means grace alone, faith alone, and freely. Christ is the one who saves. Grace, faith, freely, those are children of Christ. They come from Christ. We do not bring any of those things. But the grace and faith and the freeness of justification is not free. Someone had to pick up the tab. Someone had to pay for it by his own blood. It is only free to us, but it costs Christ his own blood. Free justification comes through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. The redemption that is in Christ Jesus. We have to learn to understand and use biblical terms for spiritual things because that's the only way we can be accurate in teaching and believing the gospel and sharing it and having assurance. Assurance of salvation is not going to come from what you do. Assurance of salvation is going to come from the words that God spoke, the words that the Holy Spirit chose to communicate to us what Christ's life and death means to us. So we are told that justification comes through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So we have to understand what to redeem means. To redeem is to set free by paying a ransom price. Okay, A ransom price or redemption price. So redemption by nature, by its very nature, assumes captivity. It assumes captivity. Number one, it also assumes an inability for the captive to pay for their own freedom. They are not able to pay. They're in captivity and they lack the ability to set themselves free. And Jesus' blood was the ransom price, redemption price. It was the price paid for us to be set free. And it was the only price that could set one free. And so the Apostle Paul says in Romans 3, 25 and 26, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God set forth Christ as a propitiation. That is another very important term 
of salvation that we ha- just have to know as a propitiation, as the mercy seat, as the satisfaction, the appeasement to pacify the wrath of God. So the blood of Christ pacified for us the wrath of God. It satisfied the wrath of God. So when God looks at the believer, he is satisfied. God is not mad at all at the believer in spite of their stumblings. So it is God then who ransomed you and I from himself. It is ultimately he who wanted the ransom price paid. The ransom price was not paid to the devil because we did not sin against the devil. It's not the devil who ultimately had us in captivity. We needed to be delivered from God's own hands because God's own hands was going to throw us in hell. And God said in the Old Testament that no one can deliver from his hands. So he alone could deliver us from his own hands. So Christ is God who came to deliver us from his own hands. And God was pleased with the payment that Jesus paid. And it had to be in no other currency but the blood of Christ. There is no other currency that trades in heaven. There is no other currency that God accepts for redemption. There is only one legal tender in salvation, the blood of Christ. My works, your works do not count. They are counterfeit currency. They will get you and I thrown in prison. Because when you use counterfeit money, the law demands that you be thrown in jail. And so when you bring your own works before God, guess what? You are a border jamba. <laughs> we, we need to build a big wall, electric wall for you, that you may not try to jump your way into heaven. And when you are imprisoned, there's no community service. There's no purgatory. Because purgatory is community service in exchange for justification. And that is false teaching. God demands not just blood, but the blood of his own son. One cannot butter tread their way into salvation. You can't butter salvation with government cheese. (laughs) And yet men are just doing that because they do not understand what is at stake. So the blood of Christ is the demonstration of God's righteousness. The death of Christ is the demonstration of God's righteousness and his holiness, his justice, that the soul that sins must die. And yes, according to Apostle Paul, God did not completely destroy all men because of their sin, but that was not saying he was just going to sweep it under the carpet. He was forbearing. He was long-suffering because he knew he had a better sacrifice to atone for sin. And like I like to say, God does not forgive sin and he has never forgiven sin. Never. He has never forgiven sin and he will not forgive sin. He only endures it until the time of his punishment. And for you and I, the punishment of our sin was on the cross. Christ paid for it on the cross. So in Christ Jesus, God has the means, he has the just grounds to forgive sin. 
that he may be both just and the justifier of those that approach him through the blood of Christ. So by the blood of Christ, God can freely forgive you because Christ gave himself as a ransom for your sin and he propitiated, satisfied God's wrath. And God imputes and reckons this obedience of Christ to the believer. He reckons the sacrifice of Christ, this death of Christ to you and makes it your own. He imputes that to you as your righteousness and this righteousness satisfied and satisfies and shall satisfy forever the holy law of God. Christ in his death took on the liability of your sins, paid for them, but God then took that payment that Christ made and gave it to you. And it is this transaction that is covered by the statement, do you believe in the Son of Man? So that says, we are back to finish off the part of John. I didn't want to do two sermons to finish off this part. So we're going to hang on for a few more minutes. I'm almost close to the end. But everything that we've been talking about with respect to the nature of faith is what is... But you see, the transaction and the conversation is short. And you're thinking, how then can this man be saved? This was a very short conversation. But all that is comprehended in the statements that Jesus comes and poses to the man. Do you believe in the Son of Man? Because the Son of Man is the summary title of Jesus as your Savior. Hear me? As God's suffering servant. As God's righteous servant. It is this transaction that is covered in what the Ethiopian eunuch said, I believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God. It is what is comprehended in what the ex-blind beggar answered Jesus and said in verse 36 of John 9, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? Lord, I believe. Faith appropriates everything that is in Christ Jesus and make it its own. Faith in Christ says, Christ is complete. He is enough. He is sufficient to tread with God for life and righteousness. It always looks to the raised Christ and to the raised bronze serpent in this wilderness of fiery serpents. And so the ex-blind beggar has all this in his package of confession. He has received grace upon grace. He has received Christ and everything that Jesus gives for salvation. He is a completely sanctified man. He is elect. He is loved of God. He is justified and he is already glorified. And faith in the person and work of Christ is what God uses to divide the sheep from the gods. The elect from the non-elect, the saved from the unsaved, and thus the judgment. Because to judge is to divide. It is to separate. It is to separate and pronounce a sentence of condemnation or justification. You see the separation. In verse 39 says, For judgment I came into this world so that those who do not see may see and that those who see may become blind. 
So Jesus came into this place called the world that he may divide it. To sort it out as it were so that those in this world who are blind to their lack of righteousness may see. That is those who are sinners are made aware of the fact that they are sinners and they need Christ for salvation. And that is one part of the work of judgment. To call the crippled, the blind, the sick to salvation. But then Jesus always is a two-sided coin. Salvation and condemnation always occur together. There are these who think they are righteous in their own eyes. These well men who do not need a physician. These he has come to seal their condemnation by leaving them in their own spiritual blindness. The Pharisees, as we learned, trusted in the law. They trusted in their law keeping. And Jesus said to them, because you think you see, you think you have righteousness in the law that is their sin. You think you see, you think you have righteousness in the law. And that is why Jesus said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees and scribes, you will no way see the kingdom of heaven. So they see because they think they are obeying the law. So Jesus says, you think you see, but of course you don't. I am going to leave you to die in the comfort and blindness of your sin. The blindness of failing to understand the function of the law. You see the blindness. The blindness of the Pharisees consisted in their failing to understand the proper function of the law. The law was supposed to bring them to Christ and not for them to keep it because they could not. So Jesus is the light. He is the gospel. And light either removes darkness or it blinds. It's just the twofold nature of light. The Pharisees who were gathered here against Jesus and the ex-blind men were not born again. No spiritual eyes, no faith, and were not granted repentance. And so they remained unconverted. As Isaiah would say in Isaiah 44, 18, they have not known nor understood for he has shut their eyes that they cannot see and their hearts that they cannot understand. And that's a statement of God's sovereignty that he hardens people and leaves them in their own blindness. And John would also quote from Isaiah in John 12 verses 37 to 40 and says, But though he had done so many miracles before them, yet they believed not on him that the saying of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke and said, Lord, who has believed our report and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Verse 39, therefore they could not believe because that Isaiah said again, he has blinded their eyes, hardened their heart, that they should not see with their eyes, nor understand with their heart, and be converted, and I should heal them. Sovereignty in salvation. So if you believe in the gospel, it is only because the Lord was pleased to not harden your heart and to grant you eyes to see and believe it. So Jesus is dividing the opinions of people. 
some are siding with him and saying, how can a sinner open the eyes of one born blind? And that division is Jesus doing it. And it is inevitable wherever the true gospel is preached. He has already divided the ex-blind men and taken him out of the hands of those who were blind. Verse 40. Those of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and said to him, We are not blind too, are we? (laughs) The Pharisees are shocked by Jesus' statement. Somehow this statement of judgment and the opening and closing of eyes may have pricked some the wrong way. And so they just want to check with Jesus and say, Jesus, tell us, where do we really stand on this scale of blindness? Are we also blind? (laughs) They are not expecting a very bad answer from Jesus, I do not think. Otherwise, they would not have asked. They are expecting some kind of approval from Jesus. They are expecting Jesus to say, of course, you guys are so good. <laughs> don't, don't worry about anything. But Jesus said to them, verse 41, if you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say, we see your sin remains. The problem with the Pharisees was that they did not acknowledge their own blindness. They did not acknowledge blindness to their own sin, which also blinded them to the person of Christ. If they had 2020 vision as they claim, this is spiritual language, if they had 2020 vision as they were claiming, they should have been able to see the person of Jesus. They claimed to see because they had the law. But Jesus says, if you actually believed in the law, the law had enough sight, had enough light for you to know who I am. The moon, even though it shines at night, it shines enough light for you to know that there's the sun. It has to give you some idea that there has to be some source of light somewhere. But since you have failed to see who I am, your claim of sight is false, and thus your blindness remains. They should have been able to see, to believe Jesus by the works that he was performing. So their sin remains unforgiven because they fail to acknowledge the person of Christ. If you fail to acknowledge the person of Christ, your sin can't be forgiven because sin is only forgiven when acknowledge the person of Christ. So their self-righteousness has blinded them to the need of this very Savior who is standing in their midst. And so this is where we are. What is our testimony of Christ? Has Christ put his clay on our eyes and asked us to go wash at the pool of Siloam? Do we believe in the Son of Man And are we ready to believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? It is easy to be around Jesus, to be around the synagogue, and still have your eyes closed to Christ, and still believing in the darkness of your sin, 
in the darkness of your self-righteousness. That is still trusting that God is going to save you by something that you do. It is easy to be around those who are pushing and shoving around Jesus. As what was happening with the story of the woman with the issue of blood. There were just so many people who were pushing and shoving around Jesus, but never touching him in a saving way, like what was done by the woman with the issue of blood. Let us consider this Jesus and what we think about him in relation to our standing before God. Let us pray thus and ask God to open our eyes that we're born blind, that he may be glorified also in causing us to see Christ as the Son of Man and be eager to believe on him like little children. May the story of the man born blind be your testimony. You glory in it because it pleases God. And that, my friends, was the mystery of the man born blind as God has given me understanding. We miss this chapter. <laughs> we miss this chapter. Like the story of the Samaritan woman. I love Sister Samaritan, Sarah Samaritan. I gave her name because the Holy Spirit did not give us a name. So she's Sarah. <laughs> but we are looking forward to John chapter 10. John chapter 10. The Good Shepherd Discourse. Glorious teaching. So praise be to God and let us go before him in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we just thank you again for the understanding that you have given us to understand from the book of John chapter 9. We could never say everything there is to say, but I believe you have given us that which we need to know and to hear and to believe upon that we may be saved. I pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes that we may see Christ and trust in him. Lord, we thank you for your people whom you have gathered here. We thank you for those who are not here, who shall listen to this message. May you speak to each one as you have determined for them. But we pray that you would open their eyes also that they may hear. We pray and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.